Hi, welcome to the Conversations About Consultation podcast. I'm Jessica Rowley and you're here listening to some of the conversations that myself and my co-host Dr. Emma Kennedy and Emily Crosby have had with guests from across the world about consultation in psychology. Myself and Emily are trainee educational psychologists at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust and Dr. Emma Kennedy is Deputy Course Director and teaches the consultation module on the Doctorate in Educational Psychology course. The three of us have a keen interest in consultation and hope that this podcast offers a platform to discuss different views about the topic and future directions in consultation. We hope that you enjoy listening to the episodes and if you want any more information or are interested in being a guest with us, please feel free to get in touch. Hi, welcome to this episode. Today we speak with Robin Solomon, an esteemed consultant social worker from the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust. Currently Robin works in the fostering, adoption and kinship care team and before joining the Tavistock, she worked for 16 years as a senior lecturer at Brunel University, where she taught childcare social work at both graduate and postgraduate levels. Robin's particular interests lie in relationship-based practice in social work, and she's written extensively about a psychoanalytic approach to this work. This conversation was really fascinating, and it was amazing to talk with Robin about her own work and considering how some of the themes from that work might be applicable to educational psychology practice. In particular, we're thinking about consultation. We hope you enjoy listening to this as much as we enjoyed speaking to Robin. It's a real privilege to be here with you. Thank you, Robin. We're so glad to be able to have this conversation with you. And I think it's going to appeal to so many people that will be listening. And um, it'd be really good if we could start with you telling us a little bit about yourself and kind of your journey towards becoming a social worker and how that's been for you. Um, I started my my journey as a social worker in New York, probably well over kind of 45, dare I say that, 45 years ago, maybe more, um, more. Um, and uh, I think it just felt the right place. I think I was always interested in social work because it sat on the boundary of thinking about people's kind of sort of emotional self, their internal world and the socio-political external world. And sort of social work always straddled those boundaries. And I always found that particularly interesting. So I guess that's what brought me there. And I moved to Britain in 79 and got my first job as a social worker in Britain at that point, working in a local authority. Um, and I think that we are really interested in your relational work generally. And I know that that kind of um, sort of developed from, from your work um, as a social worker. And we're really interested in how the psychodynamic theory can be used in applied work um, in your field, social work as well, but I know in community or you know psychological practice as well. Um, and I think we'd be really interested to know kind of where that interest came from um, for you. Well, I guess, interestingly, I brought it with me because my initial training was as a what was called there a clinical social worker. So we were trained very much in therapeutic work. You know, I was you know, schooled in Freud and, you know, Klein and, and so forth. So I, you know, I did bring that, although we had very much what they called the psychosocial model. Um, and when I came with that, it was interesting because I came across many colleagues who were very immersed in a much more sort of socio-political framework. 
And so that led to many interesting um, uh, discussions <laughs> and debates. Um, and I think that I moved more into the socio-political, um, you know, looking at the impact that that had in many ways. And uh, at the same time, I think um, as the, the environment people were working in became more sort of harsh towards the families we were working with and so forth, people were, I think, fleeing from social work much more into therapy. They were training to be therapists. So you know, almost, I think, as an escape from holding that role without being able to offer something more kind of therapeutic as part of a statutory provision. Uh, so, so I thought that was you know, a, an interesting shift. And when I started teaching, I think those, it led me to have to kind of articulate that in a way that I hadn't really thought about before, because I had to really enter into those kinds of discussions with students at that time and, you know, planning curriculum and so forth. Um, so, you know, we really looking and a lot of that, you know, I just say, and I don't want to spend too much time on my career because there's so many other interesting things to talk about. But I was thinking how we we talked a lot in the 80s in the practice, you know, in the in the teaching that I was doing about what, you know, what was developing as anti-oppressive practice, anti-racist practice. And it was very, very much at the heart of social work, uh, anti-discriminatory practice. I mean, there were volumes and volumes, you know, from, from that period of time. But one of the difficulties was that it talked a lot about how one intervenes in the larger, in the macro, but it was less clear about what that meant when you were in the room with an individual. Not, it, it was very big on looking at, you know, um, how do you understand those differences, but not what that meant in the transference or psychologically. And so again, I think, um, uh, you know, a lot of that became also much more interesting in the teaching and designing curriculum and what people were researching and writing about. Um, and I think that's always stayed with me. I don't know if that makes sense to, to anybody. No, I'm just thinking about kind of we, a lot of the trainees before they come on the course even are really taken by uh, Yuri Bromfenbrenner's ecosystemic model. And they know about the kind of biological system and then the micro system. And then kind of, like you say, the macro system around that and a real sense and understanding of what might be going on societally within the culture kind of underpinning values and kind of how we conceive of things like families schools the role of the state all that kind of sort of stuff but that point you're making about but how does that come into the room when you're relating um it, i don't feel like that's necessarily gone away i think that's as relevant if not more so now for for some of the trainees and eps coming in is how does the macro and our awareness and understanding of things of, of systemic racism, of disparities on so many different levels. How do I do something or how do I be in the room? Um, it, it just feels like it's still very pertinent and really, really relevant to, to today. Hmm. I mean, it's, it is so interesting because it shaped so much of our policies and our procedures. You know, I was thinking in social work about you know, same race placements when children came into care, you know, all of the things that we struggled with, things that became, you know, policy and then law, um, you know, but, but 
there was less, as you know, I think, you know, Emma, as you were just saying, there was less attention in a way to what does that mean for how somebody is going to experience, you know, what it's like to be with me as somebody offering them help. And I think that that was, I think, less in the fabric of, of what people did, what understood about. Yeah, and I think that's really important, um, and especially you'll, you'll know this, Robin, from working in the fostering and adoption and kinship care team at Tavistock for many years. Um, as trainee educational psychologists, we encounter a lot of um, children um, and families who are going through the foster or adoption processes. And I think there's definitely something about what it's like to be in the room and helping one, the child and young person, um, and two, also their, you know, their families. Um, whether that, that's their adopted parents or their foster parents or their carers or whoever it is at that moment, but also thinking about the, you know, the system um, around them. And I was just wondering if, you know, in terms of what we can take away from this conversation and um, any kind of, you know, top tips or things to always think about um, when working with these um, children and young people and their families, um, something that we could maybe share with, you know, teachers or teaching assistants and those adults that we encounter every day. I'm not sure this is, I mean, it's when the, something that comes to mind. I'm not sure it's the all encompassing kind of answer, but um, the idea of, um, I think what Freud had called a repetition compulsion really to me seems a very kind of important idea. And, you know, what was being referred to in a sense was that there are two ways to have memory, you know, that you kind of can process it so that it's a kind of thought memory, or you can have a kind of unprocessed memory, like a traumatized stuck kind of memory that you, you, you don't think about, you haven't processed, and therefore you keep kind of unconsciously recreating scenarios that bring you into that situation again and again and again. And I think one of the things that we see a lot are children who are kind of reenacting something of an earlier experience. Um, and it often gets thought about as bad behavior, naughty children. Um, but that actually, if one could rethink that is they're working something out and they need somebody to notice what they're communicating and then be able to, um, to really uh, help do something differently, not get pulled into that reenactment. So I'm struck again and again in schools where children who have been um, as it were, um, excluded from their families or often the same children who are excluded from the classroom um, and excluded from other, other situations um, and excluded from schools and so forth. Um, and that if people could um, um, manage somehow, I mean, one of my favorite is, I don't know if it's all right to give to give an example, but it's really one of my kind of um, most, to me, it was one of the most extraordinary examples. I was working with um, a, a young person who um, came into care because when they returned home from school, their parent had, had left. 
had gone off, had gone away. And this young, you know, she, she was about um, nine and she was left literally just banging on the door to get in. And finally a neighbor called the police because this child was just banging on the door for hours and was finally taken into care and so forth. Um, she was put with foster carers, obviously, all the things that were, you know, necessary in terms of doing an investigation with the family. I, I won't go into any of that. But that um, what was interesting was she was having lots of difficulty in school. And one of the things that happened was, um, you know, she was kept popping out of her seat, calling things out and so forth. And she was sent out of the room. And she stood in the corridor in the room, uh, uh, she stood in the corridor trying to get back into the room and she was banging on the door and she finally put her hand through a glass. It had like a glass panel and she banged through and broke the glass, which of course then became a, a really big thing. She broke this window. She was banging on the door to get in. Then of course she was excluded and so forth. So, but actually what was really important to think about in a way was something so fundamental that she could not get in. And I can go back through other, you know, her family story and there are ways in which from her earliest experience, there was always a sense of, you know, um, adults who ignored her and she had to do an awful lot to get people's attention in order to get into their, kind of companionship to get into their space, to get into their minds, to, you know, have them think about her. Um, and then there was this literally being locked out. And it was very hard because the school, of course, had, you know, we have to discipline, you know, we have to deal with discipline. We can't let that be the behavior and let everybody get away with it and so forth. But it was really hard to, you know, help people think about what was that real um, repetition of, and that, you know, a need to get in, you know, and that could something have been done differently in thinking about that. Well, I mean, in the moment, we all do those things. We send somebody out of the room, we get, you know, we would want to punish them, you know, appropriately for breaking school property, whatever. Um, but there what there is a way in which something could get into the child in repeating it, and then the teacher, and then the school. And interestingly, in this example, and that's why it's one that stands out so much in my mind, at one point I was called to um, um, a professionals meeting and I arrived at the where it was being held in the local authority, which was one of those unusual buildings where it's not, it wasn't for clients, you know, it was where the staff worked and you needed the cards, pass cards and everything to get in. And so, I, I arrived late because I, I had a squeeze in this meeting and, you know, so I had finished something, get there, you know, got there. I was a bit late and I'm, I'm trying to get in. I can't get in. There's no, you know, ring the doorbell. Nobody's answering. And I literally find myself banging on this door to get into this building and get into this meeting, you know. Um, and it was this extraordinary, you know, at the time, all I could think about is why isn't anybody letting me in, you know, I, you know, when I'm going to be even later and I put all this effort into getting here and look what's that. But there was this extraordinary when we could stand away from it later on and start to notice that as a, as a pattern, we were able to start to think, where is this, you know, where is the core? Where's the seed of that? And it really helped to understand a bit more about this child and what she needed and help the 
the classroom teacher think more about how to include her more in the in the classroom, in the setting, or to think differently about what it would mean to her to be sent out rather than stay put, um, even if she'd done something problematic, you know, who might be able to help in the room rather, those kinds of things. So I think there is something about noticing these kind of repeating patterns. And I guess the, the other bit is that children who can't, talk about what's going on for them inside and don't, can't talk about their, their feelings and experiences, still communicate their emotions very powerfully. And they, in a way, do that by projecting those into other people. And so it's something about having um, uh, professionals who are working with the young people feel, I guess, um, secure enough to know that what's professional is to say this child you know makes me want to slap her you know because what's professional is not to slap her but what's but but what is professional is to say you know she makes me she gets me in such a state or she's so controlling I want to take charge you know I want to or I want to punish her or I find myself always critical of her in some way or and if we could own those and share them amongst people, it would be like putting the pieces of a jigsaw together so that you can actually say, you know, what's common to those? Why does one person kind of get some of those projected into them and somebody else? But I think we're so caught up with the sense that professional, you know, there's like this fantasy that professional means cut yourself off. I don't have any feelings. I'm just going to carry on as if I'm a, a robot or something. But actually, it's something more about how do I gather up the feelings that get evoked and, and often traumatized children project, you know, their communications are through projection much more than through saying, this is what I feel. Um, so I guess those would be two things that I would um, think might be helpful to think about. Yeah, both hugely important and, and really, really helpful ideas. I think in the example that you were giving about the first case, just that idea of being able to notice what might be happening. And then also this idea about um, a space to be able to talk about what feelings one is having, having. I think one of the things that's probably quite striking for us is how little opportunity there perhaps may be for teachers to be given those kinds of spaces. So a space to notice actually what might this be about is, is maybe not always necessarily there, but also to actually be able to name some feelings that like you say, would be deemed to be hugely unprofessional, uh, completely wrong. No one can ever say anything other than, I love all of the children, they're always great. I have nothing but positive <laughs> feelings about them. Um, I, I do wonder about the degree to which all of those quite uncomfortable feelings that teachers may be having are experiences quite threatening and therefore get really pushed down, but are, are ultimately probably controlling them in some way because they haven't been given the space to be able to share them, to acknowledge them, to, to process them a little bit more. And part of our model of, of consultation that we, we kind of promote with the trainees at, at the Trust is the idea that perhaps some form of containment can be offered to the teacher if the psychologist can create a relational space that permits 
something to, to be shared. Um, and that if the psychologist can meet that sharing of possibly quite undigested, unprocessed, un, just a bit of mess, basically, that might come out, if the psychologist can kind of take that in, think about it, process it, you know, digest it a little bit and, and be able to feed it back to the teacher in a way that is more palatable, perhaps, or more digestible, that, that's probably a, a hypothesis that we have about why our model might work, um, is that we are offering that kind of space, hopefully, to teachers. And I guess we would be really interested just to hear a little bit more from you about this idea that can, do, you know, in, in your experience of working with networks, do you feel spaces for that kind of containment of the adults can be possible in, in quite short term work? Um, or are there some major challenges in being able to set up that kind of quality of relationship if you're not seeing somebody very, very regularly? I, th I think that it is possible to set that up. I think people are, um, it, it's a difficult um, culture to shift in a number of ways. I think partly, and I don't know enough about schools, you know much more about that than I do, but um, I think a lot of a school culture is, you know, these are the things we have to achieve. This is the syllabus we need to finish. These are the things we have to do. So that the, the, the culture is to get on with tasks. And there isn't necessarily a culture of, thinking time is useful, you know, that the processing time is useful. Um, and I think in a, in, a, in a way, linking it to what I was saying before, that um, what, what children need, I mean, I guess what I would say for learning is also some time to process the experience of learning and to, um, uh, to have some reflection time. And, um, and in a way, the, the staff need the same thing and the school needs to provide it. But that's a big culture shift um, for a lot of schools and in this, and certainly in the current environment where, you know, the outcomes become, you know, all that people are, are focusing on. And I, I don't want to lose sight of when we're having this conversation, which is, you know, during the pandemic. And I think there has been even more of a kind of pressure not to allow any space to think. It's almost a terror that if you let yourself reflect, you will, there'll, too many horrible things will kind of bubble up so that you keep the lid on it by doing tasks and by managing things, you know, get this done, get this finished. Um, and so I think there's both the ordinary difference of what, you know, and, and school environment is to get people to learn and so forth. Um, so I, I think it's both a more generic kind of um, educational function, but I also think it's been exacerbated terribly by the, you know, by the pandemic and the pressures people are under and what falls off the agenda is thinking time. 
Um, and I think that's true of the work we do with patients as well. Get them through with, you know, see them for six sessions, you know, next, you know, here's my next patient, get them through, you know, get the next assessment done. And if you spend time thinking, it's almost as if you're wasting time or you're not busy. You know, if you had, you know, if you're spending time to think about, you know, the, the work when you finish it, you know, after you've had a session with somebody and you need some time to process it, it's almost as if that's not work, that's extra, that's a luxury. <laughs> so that that part of the work doesn't get, um, uh, it's not used in a helpful way. It's, it's what's kind of sliced off. And I think, um, you know, helping people to think that that is sometimes the work um, is, is, that's the shift. You know, that the work is not just the task, but the work, and you can do so much with the dynamics. You know, you can learn so much. That is data, you know, kind of what, what a, a child makes you feel, what you've observed, what kind of patterns are evident, those kinds of things. That is, that's data for your assessments. You know, assessments aren't just, you know, what answer they gave to question five. You know, it's, it's something else. So I think if, again, if maybe that could be reframed for people as useful information, it might mean people could spend a bit more, allow themselves the time to kind of think about, share, use the, that kind of relational experience. And I guess I, I was thinking, Robin, just listening to you speak, it's really great actually just hearing you reflect on things. But I was wondering about actually our role as trainees or qualified educational psychologists, maybe some of that is to create that space and create that change in um, narrative, I guess, around what information is helpful, isn't helpful. Um, and part of me was thinking, you know, it's difficult to separate myself from having training at the Tavistock <laughs> where perhaps these concepts or or the idea of thinking in this way might be a little bit more familiar or comfortable perhaps not when I first started actually I found it alien and it took probably about a year until it kind of clicked and I was like oh like makes total sense now how that would be helpful in like my formulation or working with um, staff or consultees or whoever I'm working with children too um, but I think lots of people that will listen to this, I think, won't maybe have that same familiarity or level of comfort with this way of thinking or this way of practicing. And I was thinking when you were reflecting on how you noticed with that child that there were lots of patterns that you were kind of picking up on. Um, and that was telling you a lot that it was telling you, you know, you, were, you have the knowledge kind of to be able to be like, hmm, interesting, like that's telling me that this child, you know, has had these experiences in the past and that might be influencing how they are, um, yeah, interacting now with their environment and the people around them. I just wondered whether you had any ideas on how, when you fed that sort of information back to teachers or to people, the adults working with the child, um, yeah, whether there was any ways that you found were really helpful to do that or, yeah, in a, in a way that made it accessible sort of information, because I think that is something that I personally still I'm not quite sure how to do that. Um, I'll have the thoughts, I'll have the noticing the patterns and find it quite hard to articulate um, in like consultation, for example, when I'm feeding back about a child or a young person. First, Jessica, I, I think it's really um, 
just important to say that no matter how many years you've been doing it, when you're sitting in the room, you know, at a consultation where everybody is worked up and, you know, it's very emotive what's going on, it is extremely difficult to kind of keep your own thinking head on. Um, and we get pulled into positions um, all the time. So um, I don't think it's only, you know, being a trainee. I think it's, um, I think that keeps happening. I think, I guess there would be two things. I think sometimes it's useful just to tentatively put something out there, you know, just to notice something that's going on. You'll get a lot of information from um, how it gets responded to. People will either talk over it and ignore it or tell you it's not relevant to the discussion or that we don't have time for these silly ideas or whatever it is, where they'll say, yes, 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 and then they'll change the subject completely. Or, but that's information in and of itself, yeah? Um, so sometimes, and you know, again, depending on who you're working with, how well you know them. I mean, Emily, you were saying you were working in, you know, you're getting to know people across a few schools. So as you start to develop those links and relationships, you might find it easier to kind of find a style. And each of you will have your, you know, sometimes people use a bit of humor. Um, you know, sometimes people will be able to say, you know, I've just been thinking about, I don't know, I, you know. So there are all sorts of ways of presenting that as, a, as an idea. The other thing is a lot of these things, I mean, when I was pounding on the door to get into that building, I wasn't immediately in that moment going, look at that, how extraordinary is that? In fact, you know, I, I ended up back with a very unhelpful conversation, a phone conversation with the social worker who they'd already done something, you know, and then we ended up getting into this kind of very polarized positions, you know, and it took me kind of going back and bringing it to supervision and go, you know, wait a minute, we all got caught up in this terrible enactment, you know. Um, so I think sometimes coming away from it and thinking about those and then put down your comments somewhere, you know, write them down, um, send them to the chair, whoever chaired that meeting or you know, email people with some helpful afterthoughts, you know, that kind of thing, um, or find somebody that you could link with to share who might be more kind of central to the ongoing discussion, you know, that you can say, you know, it was really interesting. What I noticed was this happened or this happened or this happened and help them think about it a little bit. So they, you know, feed it back in. <laughs> to that network somewhere. So um, yeah, I, 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 and I think as people start getting interested in those ideas, and not everybody will be, but if people start to get interested in those ideas, you'll find that what you have to say are your observations can, they'll start to be interested in what you observed. So sometimes it's only possible to, which it is all it is. We often don't know what it is that we're seeing, but it is possible to say, do you know, I've been sitting here for 10 minutes at this meeting and noticed that we're getting into these really polarized positions, you know, and maybe it's just worth us noticing that and 
figuring out why that might be, you know, that kind of response, um, because they are observations until they're put together as part of a bigger, a bigger picture. I don't know if that is helpful at all. Yeah, so helpful. Thank you. I think lots of people also find it helpful to <laughs> to hear as well and actually yeah the idea that it's not maybe just being a trainee I know it is still quite new um but I yeah I appreciate that knowing that actually you know it's gonna always feel a little bit like challenging probably and and actually it does make me think about and I've thought this before about the relational model and and the fact that sometimes psychodynamic theory or coming from that sort of perspective maybe it takes a bit more skill in a way to be able to be um like reflect in action um like you say like in that moment when you were banging on the door you weren't thinking oh like, I'm noticing that you know that sort of thing but actually sometimes when we are in meetings and they are you know charged emotionally with several professionals maybe with parents like it is perhaps some of our skill or role to be able to pick up on some of those things in the moment um which I guess we'd always be like learning how to improve that skill hopefully <laughs> I guess Robin um just to move on to something else well the one of the reasons we were really excited for you to kind of come on the podcast especially for Emily and I and prompted by Emma's teaching on our course is around endings um and what endings mean what beginnings mean I guess to start with um but also you know for in our role, endings aren't really thought about. I know we've had conversations before about the fact that there isn't much research about endings in educational psychology. It's quite, I guess, an interesting profession in the way that relationships and the length or duration of relationships can be very varied depending on how you practice or who those relationships are with. If it's statutory advice, maybe you see a child for an hour or you assess a child and yeah, it depends on so many different things. But I think there is a difficulty perhaps in the profession of acknowledging that these relationships do end um, and what that might bring up for us as professionals, what it might bring up for consultees that we work with um, or children that we work with as well and obviously we know that um, you have a whole chapter on endings in social work from a relationship kind of based lens um, so it'll be really yeah be really interesting just to hear your kind of thoughts on endings and yeah what kind of prompted you to separate endings from outcomes because I know that there's a kind of a quote in there that endings are different from outcomes and that really resonated with me um, when I read it but it would be good to hear yeah how how you kind of came to that separation when you were working with children and their families. I am really interested in endings um, um, I guess some of it sort of personal some of it professional you know I, I, I think it's probably one of the areas that anybody that knows me knows I'm not great at goodbyes you know so so that's always been something curious and all of my you know students over years will know that you know I, I can't finish a you know a, a session on time you know <laughs> those kinds of things so you so I, I I had to be interested in it for myself as well I think I I I became interested in it really without knowing that's what it was about very early on when I moved from my first job to my second job. So from my uh, the work I was doing in the local authority and then moved to the, the, the um, lecturing job. And 
I knew I had to say goodbye to my, you know, to varied patients who I'd seen, you know, some I had just started the work, some I'd been working with over an extended, you know, years. Sometimes you supported a family over, you know, many years at the time. Um, I assumed who would, you know, who I'd need to spend time working on it with, you know, and other ones, oh, I don't know them very well. They'll just be, yeah, fine. You know, that kind of thing. And I was really quite astounded at how wrong I'd gotten it in so many places that, you know, um, people that I'd worked with for a long time, you know, were able to manage working on an ending. Not everybody, but, you know, some people were or not. But, but this one person that I saw who I'd barely known, and she was just beside herself about, you know, how could you go? How could you leave? And I thought, you know, we barely spend time together you know why was it her that was complaining and making the biggest you know so it's it really started to you know help me think a lot more about the difference between how much time you spend and the dynamics around ending the work and so it always remains something quite interesting and I guess it was it was that overlap really um and I think that more and more in contemporary work, we are very preoccupied with outcomes. And again and again, I've been struck by, you know, um, they're very different things. Um, that um, an ending is about a relationship and outcomes is about a task. Um, and they, they over, overlap but they're, they're, not, they're not always the same. And I guess I also became really interesting, interested in how um, uh, endings tell you so much about, they so, people's, people's, the way people do endings links up so much to earlier experiences of separation. And I think again, having a, you know, working so intensively with population of looked after children, adopted children, that was more pronounced than it is with many other, you know, many other young people. Um, but there is really something about um, what, what I, I know I'm sort of rambling here a bit, but, but in ordinary development, that primary first developmental task of experiencing oneself as different from the parent, you know, we start out you know, we are one, literally one body, you know, we get separated biologically, you know, we come out of that body, but we still kind of have a first experience of, you know, it is me and, you know, that's it. And that developmental experience of kind of, oh, there's me and there's other is quite a profound um, uh, and primary uh, experience and how that was managed, how we relate to that, does set up a template for so many other relate, you know, um, ending separations in, in our life. And you can link many things back. And I think I go into a lot of detail in the chapter about those processes. Um, and then these are often disturbed. So for example, with looked after children, um, that what we often see in the work with them is defense against endings, that um, they have built up such defense against that separation. So they are the ones in control of the separation. They never care. They rubbish whatever they had before. It's much easier to leave somebody that 
you don't give a toss about than somebody you really have feelings about. Um, so a lot of those early processes kind of manifest themselves again and again, and we see that in, in the work that we do. Um, but I think we're often, we often think, oh, well, it's only endings when we're talking about long-term therapeutic relationships, then we have to work towards an ending and so forth. But, uh, but every session we have with somebody has a beginning, a middle and an end we can collect, as I say, data, I hate to use it, you know, but I think we're in, you know, that sort of research mind that, that every, every session has a beginning, a middle and an end. Um, people come through the door already in conversation with you as if they've never been separate from you, that kind of thing, um, or they don't know how to start and they sit in silence and they don't know where to begin. They assume that you either have forgotten everything from the last time you met them or you've remembered everything and they've forgotten everything as if you're starting all over again. I mean, every beginning tells its story. And then the same thing at the ends of sessions. So the person who kind of is watching the clock and you know decides when the session's going to be over, the person that always overruns, like me, you know, who you know can't, can't quite finish on time, the person you know with their hand on the doorknob who's still oh and by the way and tells you some terribly risky things so that you can't finish, you know, all of those things, and you you notice it in one session, although you don't know that that's a pattern or a theme, you know, it could just be an arbitrary thing due to meeting somebody new and they, you know, they were highly anxious, whatever, um, or they had a, an appointment to keep or, you know, that's why they were so, you know, worried about the time. But if you start to see those kind of patterns over time, um, then then you can, you can begin to say they have some meaning. I mean, I was thinking about um, uh, an adopted boy that I worked with for quite a long time. Um, he was a bit older, so he finally was able to come on his own without his, his parents, um, somebody, an adult bringing him. And he would usually arrive about mm, 20 minutes late. He'd knock at my door, bypassing reception. You know, he'd, he'd come and he'd sort of appear and tell me, I only have 10 minutes. And then he would sit down, you know, he would tell me something for 10 minutes. I mean, I'm just like regurgitating his week, narrating something he thought I would want to hear. And then he kind of ran out of words. And then he would go, well, I think I have to go now. That sort of thing. And he always then had to go at that moment when we might be able to start to think about what he brought. It was, you know, in a way, this is, this is all I can manage in here and I'm going now. You know, um, and it really took a lot of, of work on what what was he ending prematurely, and actually later, many many years later, you know, I was, you know, we were able to think through some, you know, with pair actually with adoptive parents, but we were able to think through a bit more about, you know, what, you know, what was he, what stopped early, what part of his relationship stopped too soon and that he really can't work with any of that. You know, something was left that, you know, it's very controlled, it's out the door. I don't want to know what you think about what I've had to say, it's reportage, you know, and then I go and it was almost like, you know, looked after children often come with a, you know, a chronology, but no narrative.
to, to the story and so forth. So I just, I'm using that as an example, but I think you can then start to think, actually there's something here about separation. And for him, it was about very early issues, you know, when he was tiny, and then that got replicated through the care system later on. So it was very, very potent. But we all bring that, you know, and I guess I wanted to, because I know you had asked me about consultations and endings, and I had never really put the two together. You know, I'd, I'd kind of written about endings. I talked about, you know, working with networks. Um, so you gave me something really quite interesting to, to just put my head around. But I did find myself thinking about, you know, even going to one network meeting. A network meeting has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I, I found myself starting to think about packed agendas so that, you know, again, outcomes and endings. You know, the meeting ends because we put aside an hour to do it in, but we haven't really processed anything that was going on. Um, or um, who has to leave always, you know, or what doesn't get covered. And so maybe there's a way in which, you know, again, reflecting back on it or sharing something about, you know, and I was just thinking now in COVID, I know I'm trying to squeeze in so many different things, but I was just thinking how many consultations I've now done online. And that sense I've often sort of thought with people about, you know, do I press the leave button when I'm hosting a a consultation media group, you know, do I press the leave meeting, uh, leave button and everybody just stops because that's the end of our time together? Or do I sort of wait there and let people kind of funnel out of the, out of the room kind of thing? Um, and where are they going to once that ending has happened? And does it feel very severe? And do we need to start to think about that before the ending? So, you know, thinking about if you're in a network meeting, is there something about remembering that it's going to end and that your contribution as a consultant might be about noticing that before the end of the meeting, before we run out of time, you know, do we need to stop now and mm. think about mm. who said what or, you know, why this person was on the the parent side and this one was on the child side and that one, you know, those kinds of things and, and name some of the dynamics and say, you know, do we need some time to process those? So just maybe yeah. link. It's just fascinating about, I suppose one of the other things that we would want to try and pay attention to that sometimes gets a bit skipped over is the idea of, you know, the time does serve a boundary or a container around an experience. So knowing that something for some children, it's relieving that it won't be on for that much longer and it will be over. And that holds the space a little bit. But also the point about kind of doing consultations or working with networks online and in the room. Um, I, it was just making me think about territory, Robin, like we may be ending, perhaps, a, you know, parents had a, a, a consultation or a stat and it's, it's been, oh, lots of them can be quite emotional because they're about children. We have feelings about children. But in terms of, it's not like you're in the school and you can walk out to a different space or you go back to your home or like I'm saying, you have your journey around. You're having to end, but then stay 
in the same seat potentially that you've been in, in the same room, and possibly have another consultation or another meeting, physically still in the same space, but you're asking your mind and psychologically to switch and begin anew without having had any kind of body feedback to say this, that finished, now you have a little transition time and you can go into something else. Um, and it is really making me really just attend to the idea that one can click on the leave meeting or end meeting for all or whatever it might be on Zoom. And that's a technological clicking, but there is a psychological meaning that what might that be like for something just to end without having quite had the chance to say goodbye. It, yeah, it's just really, it's just making me really think about what we might see as being very simple and very straightforward, actually probably on lots of levels as a different kind of meaning. In terms of thinking about consultation and endings, and obviously we haven't really got, got to that point, but I hope, I hope we will <laughs> and in the future. Um, I think I know I'm working with a case and uh, I know I'm, I'm at that ending part of my consultation, um, but it, it, it's quite difficult. You know, it's you write up the report um, you reevaluate kind of what you've done. You've done that bit before and you're, you have your final, you know, kind of consultation meeting and you're thinking about, you know, wrapping everything up. <laughs> um, and there just keeps being things that you get pulled into and having to re and go, go over things, recap things, um, which in my understanding, I thought we had gone through, um, but it's been perceived differently. And it's, it is really um, useful to think about because um, I'm seeing it in practice. And um, so it would be really nice um, to get some theory and research um, behind that. I mean, it's, it's so interesting, Emily, because I, it's, I think the pressure is on, you know, on professionals to finish up the report, to write it and say, I've done that, it's ended, and here's your report, mm -hmm. and I've understood this, and we've diagnosed that, and whatever it is. But actually, this mother is telling you something, mm -hmm. which is your report might be finished, the assessment process might be finished, but she's not able to end something for a reason. And I guess it makes me think about whether a conversation with a parent in that way mm -hmm. is, would be important. You might not be the person who can then continue to carry it on, mm -hmm. but you might be able to find a way to talk to her a bit about you know, we, we'd, only, we'd have these sessions, we know we'd gathered all of that up, but there's a lot more that you really want some space to talk about. You're noticing she needs something else. And then part of your work might be how to direct her mm -hmm. towards something that would be helpful, either more time with you, but maybe not. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you for that. I guess I was wondering a bit as you were speaking as well about how you Emily felt about it you know like because I was thinking about sometimes there are situations where I notice in myself you know how I'm responding to an ending um there'll be like cases where I feel like yeah like I'm comfortable coming to an end and like having conversations about that and then other times where maybe I haven't noticed in the moment but I've actually just basically 
disappeared without really saying anything and then looked back and or been in supervision and kind of reflecting on it and thought "Mm, like what was it about that situation that kind of yeah led me to respond in that way and maybe my own experiences of of endings or how I feel about that I don't know Robin whether that's something that you've kind of explored much or that you'd have any yeah advice on really and how, how you kind of look inwards in that sense um to your own experience and how that might impact working with families as well it's so important jessica that we're able to differentiate between what belongs to us and what belongs to the person or people we're dealing with um i know you know when people are training to be therapists or analysts they are in therapy they're in analysis so that they get help with reflecting on that um but it's also things we can start to be aware of. We all have a valence for hanging on or, you know, getting out the door too quickly. I, you know, I think I mentioned it in the, in the chapter when I, you know, I often ask, are you somebody who leaves the party early? Or are you the, you know, the one that sweeps up at the end, you know, are there patterns that you could think about yourself? Um, And I guess the the times when I become most curious is when it's not my usual pattern of being, you know, because I could be alert to the pattern. You know, I will be the one who doesn't end the session on time. I have to be very cognizant of that. You know, if it's meant to end at whatever time, I have to keep a careful eye or I'll keep going, you know, that kind of thing. Um, But it's, it's often, you know, was this me or was it them? Was I getting pulled into something or is it something that I initiate in some ways around and, you know, am I a rescuer and I have to keep going? Do Am I a perfectionist and I have to finish it? You know, I have to, three more sessions until, you know, or is that coming from them? If you only give me a little bit more, we'll resolve everything. It will all be okay. You know that? So I think part of supervision, and I can only say in these situations that if you're working in a relationship-based way, supervision is fundamental because somebody outside yourself can help you unpick that a bit. You know, is this what's getting projected into me? Is it my own, you know, is is it my own valence towards a way of being? Is it my own issues around separation? you know, where, do, where does it belong? Um, and in processing that, I think, you again, you'll get lots of information. And I think one of the challenges for, for educational psychologists and for trainee educational psychologists is that they're very cognizant of the fact that teaching as a discipline is probably one of the only professions we can think of that doesn't have almost a, a, I'm not saying every other profession has got supervision cracked by no means at all, but there's no commonly understood expectation that supervision is that mind minding your mind that will help you try to unpick a little bit. And because there's such a gaping hole, and also I think like teachers spend the day, every day, with lots of children, all of whom have feelings and families and relationships, and they're relating to each other and to the teacher. And for for a person who's caught up like a, a, a beautiful but very complicated spider's web of, of patterns of connection, to not afford them the opportunity to have somebody to to be with and to think with about what's 
been going on um, does make, I suppose, us wonder about is, is that part of the missing piece for, for schools that staff aren't provided with that and therefore the, the chances that you're in receipt of some quite powerful projections from children and families and from each other and your own stuff and all this and like you say a kind of a culture around task get it done get it finished that teachers then when they do encounter a child that it's not easy it doesn't go well they don't respond they they you know the best teaching in the world they're still not reading the way the teacher would want them to be or they they don't relate in quite the same way that actually it may that I think is part of what the teacher brings to the consultant is all of those feelings that have had no place else to go or to be thought about and trying to I don't know not locate everything in that like as in I'm bringing you this child in a way of trying to help think about you're also bringing you and you're bringing your and that's okay and you're you're worth as a professional some time and care and attention and energy from me because hopefully through having that space something might shift a bit i think emma you put it really well and maybe that is part of the role of the educational psychologist and some as in every as in every profession, every discipline, some people will be more open to that than others. Some people will feel quite exposed by having um, somebody in the school who's suggesting that you look at yourself. It might be a totally different way of um, kind of thinking about your role and what you do. and that could be really that could be really hard about how do you offer it in an in a helpful way that doesn't feel threatening to somebody. Um, and I it made me think, Emma, when you were describing it about the I will send this difficult child to you. You know, it's almost like you know, do cure them get rid of them, do something with them, because I have another 30 that are, you know, taking up the space in my mind. And of course they do. But I guess thinking about that, who gets sent to you to be cured, to, you know, get out of that space. And is there something about what you could feed back that feels helpful to the teacher who will then have to have that child back in the classroom and you haven't waved a magic wand and been able to make it easier for them, you know, um, and maybe sharing a bit of how frustrating that child might've been for you when you were working with them or how complicated they were or how you, you know, found them puzzling or whatever it is and making sure that the teacher, um, gets some feedback about your thoughts about that. And um, it's unlikely it will change the culture of the school. And maybe it shouldn't, you know, maybe, you know, as you're saying, that is the teaching role. You're focused on educating a class full of young people, not necessarily being there for individual, you know, psychological and emotional and behavioral needs but it's something about how do you get that person to be interested in what's getting communicated in that difficult behavior 
that if we could capture it a bit and understand it better, somebody might be able to work with it in a different way or help make it easier for the for the teacher to, you know to have them back in the classroom that's what i'm i'm sort of listening to um uh and and offering something back seems really in this case very important they do a tremendously difficult job and they must be exhausted both through the task and what they're absorbing what's getting projected into them what they're observing um you know i, I can't quite imagine how difficult that that role must be um you know faced with and but you know at the moment particularly with the the demands and the requirements that are put on on people they need you but but you know it, it, it's interesting to start to say you know what that might look like and how that can be helpful to, to others yeah i think it's so interesting robin to hear you, your reflections on a very poignant point you know, just reminding us that actually that role, you know, it's almost impossible, really, when you think about it, the, the pressures that are on teachers to, yeah, like you say, they're, they're doing that job because they want to educate children, not to, you know, be psychotherapists or, you know, it, it's almost, um, I don't know, quite difficult to assume that a teacher would be able to access that or would want to access that sort of knowledge or to be able to think about things in that way so I think it does remind you to be very aware of of the pressures that teachers are under and and also yeah in how we can provide space perhaps to help them process that um I'm aware that we ironically are coming to an end <laughs> um and yeah without it being too much of a, a very brief ending usually which hopefully will provide some containment <laughs> in the ending. Um, we ask all of our guests the, the similar question at the end, whether there's anything, Robin, that, you know, a book, an article, a chapter, something that you've seen, something that you've read, or something that you've listened to perhaps um, about endings or about anything really that we've spoken about today that, think, that you think might have changed kind of your thinking or that you think people listening might benefit from in terms of helping them to think about endings and yeah all of the things we've spoken about I guess you've caught me off guard I don't know what um what to say that's uh, okay we can always can edit back? can I come back to you on that <laughs> yeah just pause it's fine <laughs> I'll have to think about that um but yeah well I would want to kind of um say I feel that your chapter on endings um is one of the most influential it's it's written beautifully clearly it has applicability I well I mean the the trainees have to read it because it's on their reading list so I hope they would say the same it's it's so accessible yes it is written with uh, you know it's in a book called relationship-based social work but the ideas and the clarity of the thinking and the applicability of us, I feel we should be definitely saying one thing that I've read about endings that's changed how I think about them is, is your chapter in that book. Um, but yeah, I guess we're always keen to find out when we, when we talk to people, was there, I don't know, a movie they watched or a book they read or, or a professional article that they read that they just thought, gosh, I wish I'd read this sooner or, this has made a difference to how I'm I'm thinking. So 
do come back to us if anything comes to mind that you think, oh gosh, yes, that would be a good, a good read. We like to try and... I will definitely try and come back to you with a... Fantastic. That would be really great. <laughs> and it's been a pleasure, Robin, to speak to you. And I'm sure we could continue um, talking about all of these things. And I hope that we do, actually, that we can stay connected. And perhaps in the future, you would maybe come on again and talk about some other things. Um, yeah, so it, it's been great to have you on. I'm sure Emma and Emily echo that too. Yeah, it's been it's been so insightful um, just listening um, to you, Robin, and hearing about your experiences. And it's really helped me reflect um, on where I'm at now and some of my cases and my previous cases. And um, we really appreciate you giving up your time. It has actually been a pleasure to meet oh. with you. Um, I hope I haven't rambled too much um, because these are subjects, you know, and areas that are very dear to my heart. Um, and, you know, I, I really think that because just thinking about these things, being interested in them is what's important and your interest in say endings. And when you start to talk about that with people in consultations, they will start to become interested in it yeah. as well. So it will kind of have a ripple, of, a ripple effect. And hopefully that will um, enhance a lot of people's uh, work or thinking, but it's been a pleasure. And maybe one day you'll, you know, we'll have a further conversation. It would be lovely. <laughs>